Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who shaped me, published by Headline and out now. It's a book that's all about my experience of growing up with five little sisters and our relationships with the women who define our lives and how they inspire us and infuriate us. My sisters in particular are the only women I would kill for and the only women I have ever wanted to kill. The Sisterhood is available from bookshops nationwide and buying it is the very best way for you to support the podcast. This week I've been reading Expectation by Anna Hope, which is published by Penguin this July. It's an absorbing, detailed examination of friendship, womanhood and all of the challenges of having to live in a world where your gender defines and restricts your paths. I'm loving it and the themes make me think of another book I absolutely adored by this week's guest Julie Cohen. Julie's latest novel, Louis and Louise, takes a person as the central character, Louis, and explores how their life would be similar or different depending on whether they had been born a man or a woman. Julie writes so perceptively about families, longing, love and tragedy, so I wasn't surprised to learn that she's a John Irving superfan. However, there were lots of other surprises in our conversation, from her obsession with Sherlock Holmes to how she struggled to write her first Mills and Boone novel and the fact that her award-winning, best-selling smash hit novel Together was only published due to an incredible act of bravery from Julie. Here she is. I know from um, conversations we have had in the past that you are a big fan of the world of Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) I've just seen Conan Doyle and The Crimes Club by Stephen Wade. Yeah, that's by a friend of mine. Uh, who's a true crime writer and loves Conan Doyle as much as I do. We're both fanatics. You, you, when, when Sherlock Holmes fanatics get together, we just talk for ages about what <laughs> and who's good as Sherlock Holmes and who's not good as Sherlock Holmes, and, and we can talk for a very long time about it. Where did that obsession come from? Did you read the books like as a child, or is it Conan Doyle as a writer, or more the character that fascinates you? It's the character. So... I don't know if I have any on the shelves or going around the shelves. That is, yeah, you, do you have a mental map in your in your head of all the books, all your books and where they are in your house? Oh, I really wish I did. I think yeah. producer Dale does because quite often I'll just be looking for something and it'll be like, uh, it's orange. I know it's orange. <laughs> and then I'll find it and it's green. Oh, no, I know just where it is. So so down here mm. um, is, 
this is the only Sherlock Holmes I have right now. No, I have a few other pap paperbacks, but I don't have that many, which is the original illustrated Sherlock Holmes. But when I was 11 years old, I got Watership Down out of the library. And I love that book, I love it so much. But it was really thick and I was really pleased with myself for reading such a thick book. So then I got given a book token by my um, aunt and uncle and I went to the shop and the biggest book they had on the shelf that I could afford was the complete Sherlock Holmes, which was all 56 short stories and four novels collected in, you know, with like onion paper. It was so, so thin. And so I bought that and I read it cover to cover. I was 11 and I fell in love utterly. And I decided at that moment that I wanted to A, live in Victorian London, B, be Sherlock Holmes. So that so all changed my life. came from you wanting the most bang for your book book. Yeah, yeah, it did. I just wanted, that was my pure, that's all I wanted was a big book. And then my dad was a Sherlock Holmes fan. So he was really excited when I brought it home. So, so we would read it together and talk about it. So did you have any of the books in the house? Or had you mentioned it before? Or did you just kind of come across it? Because I suppose 11 is... I think quite young because those stories do get quite dark. Yeah, they do, and and the the grammar sometimes can be a little bit hard, and and um and they are very Victorian, so there's a lot of assumptions that are made that you don't really understand mm -hmm. when you're 11 in Maine in America. But um, no, my parent, my dad didn't have it. My parents are interesting, so I hoard books, and I have a lot of books everywhere in the house. Mm -hmm. But my mum and dad are big readers, but they're big library users because ah. they live right around the corner from the library, so they don't own many books. Um, they tend to read, you know, mm -hmm. several books a week, but then have a com continuing sort of circuit with the library. So the library is their bookshelf. Was that part of your world too? Did you dream of a time when you'd have kind of your own library and books in your house, or did you? just do what they do and think oh no you don't keep books you read them you love them they go back I do tend to get rid of a lot of books um but I keep a lot more than my parents do we didn't have a bookshop in the town where I grew up we only had the library so the library was a that was how I read everything so I didn't own that many books as a kid um so I guess now I find them I, I need to have them <laughs> can you remember when you first started going to the library and were you allowed to kind of roam unsupervised and what did you pull out the shelves oh okay so our library in Rumford Maine is an absolutely special place it's a Carnegie library so it was endowed in the 30s or the 20s I think by Andrew Carnegie um, and and looks like a lot of other libraries around the world they all have a similar look to them and it's beautiful um, 19th century building uh, sorry it's not 19th century 1920s I said <laughs> what 30s um, early 20th century building Are you imagining and it, it in sort of a Victorian and it's got smoke coming out of it yeah like a book factory <laughs> It's wonderful. A man it's... with a magnifying glass standing <laughs> up beside it. <laughs> it's brick. And the upstairs is for um, adult fiction and nonfiction. And downstairs in the basement is children's. So, And they have separate entrances. So we would go to the library. It was just down the hill from my house. Um, you can see it from my house. And we walked down the hill and uh, my mom would go upstairs and I would go downstairs. And they would sort of meet in the middle to check out the books. Um, but yeah, I could just have free reign of there. And the librarian was this woman called Mrs. Plummer, who I love. Um, she's passed away now, but she was the most wonderful woman. And she would, if, if you were a regular reader, she would recommend books for you. Um, and she would let you read almost anything you wanted. She did not let me read Forever Ooh. by Judy Bloom because I think I was only like nine. And she said, honey, that book is too old for you. So I couldn't take that one out. It's interesting because Forever does come up a lot on this podcast <laughs> as the book that people aren't allowed to have and kind of have to kind of 
either sneak or pass around covertly. Did you ever read forever? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I think I waited till I was older. And were you disappointed by it? Was it as exciting as you thought it was going to be? No, no. I mean, because by then I had already read Flowers in the Attic, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I had I'd snuck my parents' copy of Philip Roth's The Breast, which wow. is I think I read that when I was very young as well. Um, which where a man it's like metamorphosis except he turns into a breast instead of a cockroach um i haven't read that i know it's it's yeah i haven't read it for a very long time but i I remember reading that so forever was a little bit tame after Mm. that so these books um lucy andrews and philip roth was there kind of a streak of purience there making you think oh this is an exciting other world i'm curious about or did you happen upon them by accident I happened upon them by no. Well, the the VC Andrews everybody was reading in school. Um, the Philip Roth my parents had that was one of the very few books that they owned. I don't know if they still own it. That's so weird to have barely any books, but to have the breast. They had that, and they had they had the bad seed. Do you remember that one about the evil little girl? Um, they had that one too. I really because they don't read horror. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. That one. Um, I, I ate that one up. Read that. I can kind of picture a very pulpy cover, but I don't know if that is something that exists or just what you think of when someone says the word the bad seed. Yeah, there was a Apart blonde from... girl. They adopt a little girl and she ends up being evil and she she doesn't want the... So she kills all the other kids and I think she kills the mother as well, does she? She kills everybody. She pushes them down the stairs and stuff. She's bad. So it's Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> Hamlet meets the exorcist. <laughs> Oh, they had The Exorcist, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess they really went for 70s horror novels. They don't have those novels anymore. They've got rid of them. I love that book, The Exorcist. so much now of um, anything that's, I suppose, you know, supernatural or a thriller, where it's so rooted in the real and the domestic and the probable. Mm-hmm. And, like, all-out horror as a very commercial genre. That I don't feel that we see that as much. Not so much, no. I mean, I think I think there's a lot of nostalgia now for um, Stephen King, so still still see him. And um, C.J. Tudor's books are very Stephen King-esque. What was it like growing up in Maine with Stephen King as a presence? Was he was he the main guy, or yeah. did he come up? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Cause, well, because um, I love Stephen King, so I absolutely adore him. I've been reading him since I was, yeah, probably again, 10 or 11. I've read all of not all of them, because he writes so quickly, but I've read a lot. And um, he writes about the area where I grew up. So Castle Rock, where he sets a lot of things, is pretty much Rumford, Maine. So uh, the last book I read, actually, was his Elevation, which is a novella set in Castle Rock. He's doing a lot of novellas set there. Um, and I could recognize it. You know, the streets really sound like where I come from. And he lives not far. Um, his sort of summer home is not far from there as well so the landscape is really familiar and the way people talk is really familiar and we used to you know driving around my town um, as kids we go oh that's Cujo's house over there and <laughs> that's where Tommy Knockers happened <laughs> it's completely on our landscape was that scary or did it normalize the horror to be able to recognize all the places where it happened <laughs> it's fine Cujo's house is quite funny he lives over there <laughs> yeah <laughs> What was it like? Because I know that um, your new book, um, Louis and Louise, which I adored and I will be raving about in the intro, but you know, you you must all buy it. It's so great. Um, Writing about Maine, did that feel, 
you know, like a, a way to sort of pay tribute to a place where you grew up and something that's very vivid and accessible? Or did you feel a lot of pressure to get Maine right? They, both, yes. Not to get it right so much as to be fair. Mm. Um, I think... Maine as a landscape is really important to me and like I love Stephen King so it's in my writing and then John Irving I love John Irving mm. so that whole New England sort of setting and I absolutely loved it and I hope there was some tribute to John Irving in the novel as well like I named um the bar meanies after Owen, oh, yes. Owen Meany and things like that because I because I and one the father's called Irving um because I love that sort of thing but then if you're right because Casablanca and Louis Louise is my hometown. It is. Um, and pretty much all of the things that I write about did really happen or something very similar. But I had to be fair. And I was, so I was, when I was writing it, I was really aware that um, people from my hometown were going to read it. And people from my hometown are very, very good people. They're very good people. Um, and yet some bad things happened there um, and still do. And so I was trying to balance that so I wasn't going to offend or upset anybody but yet still be truthful about what's going on so there goes my dog (laughs) I really wanted to talk to you about uh John Irving he just mentioned there's really beautiful beautiful editions here are these all original hardbacks yeah they're, they're Dave's um he can tell you about them are your John Irving's first edition most of them yeah so, yeah, so of course. obsessed with collecting them. <laughs> Is he a, a writer that you discovered together? No, I, just, I read him when I was a teenager. Um, and then when we got together, we found out that we, that we both loved him. Oh, what a... I think that's often such a big thing in a relationship, isn't it? And knowing who someone is and how you're going to feel about them because of loving the same thing. Yeah. And these, beside um, all the John Irvings are all the Kurt Vonnegut's. So I remember on our first date, when we first met each other, we were, um, Dave was on stage, he was in a band and I came to watch his band and um, we got to talking about Kurt Vonnegut. Um, and that was right before we got together. So um, yeah, we both love him a lot. This is the most amazing Irving Vonnegut shelf. Oh, and a Julian Barnes. Um, Arthur and George. George. Yeah, that's the one about Arthur Conan Doyle. Ah, <laughs> so perfect kind of confluence of your, of your favourite things. Do you have a favourite John Irving novel? It's Cider House Rules. I love it. It's set in Maine anyway, Cider House Rules, but it's about abor- abortion and I just, I just love it. Actually, I say that? No, it's not. My favourite John Irving is A Prayer for Owen Meany and that's not on the shelf. Um, I don't know where that is. But Cider House Rules is my second favourite. Oh, it's such a good, it's such a good book. It's such an intensely human book and a, you know, a book about abortion written by a man. Mm. Um, but it's just absolutely wonderful. Princes of Maine, Kings of New England, that's it. Oh, here in St. Clouds, Dr. Larch wrote, we treat orphans as if they come from royal families. Oh, <laughs> good. so good. I, I would like that book to be read as widely as possible and read now. And obviously, you know, didn't do badly. <laughs> it's fine. John Irving is fine. But it's something that I'm surprised how quick we are to forget, I guess, when we think about reproductive rights. I don't know if you um, read the new um, J.G. Pickle book, um, A Spark of Light. No, not the most recent one. No, I read the one before that. Which I've not read the one before that. I liked Spark of Light a lot, and it's about a, um, a siege and abortion clinic, clinic yeah. in real time. And I, th- I think a lot about how 
you know, in that what, what, how little we, we know and the people who feel so extremely about these things, I think, forget the humanity of all the people involved and how books are so important and they serve to remind us mm. that no one, I think, is entirely bad or good. Mm. Unless they're the bad seed. <laughs> the bad seed was bad, but actually the bad seed, all she wanted was love. So, you know, poor bad seed. Poor bad seed. Bonnie, her name was. <laughs> I haven't read Bonnie that book. Seed. Bonnie bad seed. <laughs> I haven't read that book in 30 years and I'm like, oh yeah, her oh. name was Bonnie. I have to track it down. Um, so tell me about Kurt Vonnegut. When did you read him? What was the first book you read? Can you remember? Yeah, Cat's Cradle. And here it is. Um, wow. Was it this edition that you read first? No, I had a red paperback, but I think it had a picture of a cat's cradle on it. Um, so, so this is beautiful. This is a hardback. It looks like it possibly might be from a library originally, although I can't see any library like markings. It, so, it? But it's got that sort of that shiny cover on. And inside it, there's a bit of um, there's a pamphlet I think from a, do you know what this is? This yours? It must have Your come with the book, but it's the from the Science Fiction Book Club. Because we forget that Kurt Vonnegut is a science fiction writer. He's mm. not really treated like that anymore, but that's how he came up and that's how he was published. So that's, yeah, that's a book club edition. So it must ah. be from the Science Fiction Book Club. And Cat's Cradle is a, is a science fiction novel. Um, it's post-apocalyptic about a, um, a, a plague, a scientific plague that kills everybody on Earth. Oh, he had six kids. Did he have six kids? I mean, and that was in 1963, so heaven knows what happened after that. He did <laughs> not have a bad seat. <laughs> I don't know much Sorry. about his personal life, except, you know, that, that he was a prisoner of war in Dresden. Um, that's all I know about him. So did you want to read him because you enjoyed science fiction? Or Yeah, I love science fiction, although I didn't really read him as science fiction. I, he's, he's, I read him as more philosophy but and and also his stories are great and and I I love his language a lot um it's so simple and yet deceptive I I just think he's incredible and his ideas are incredible I mean the the idea have you read Cat's Cradle no so the thing that kills everybody is something called ice nine which is a molecule that can repattern water into ice at any temperature once a molecule of ice nine touches water, all of it freezes. So if it touches a person, all of the water in your body freezes and you, you're dead. Um, and it's, it's, created, it's, a, it's a metaphor for um, nuclear mm. arms. And it, it, it's got a character in there who develops it and who um, thinks that it's, it's not going to cause any harm, but it's the thing that kills everybody. And so what's the point of it? What's the point of Ice Nine? Mm. I think because they Other could do it. Other having a drinks party. Yeah, they could. Yeah, it was something they could just do it. They did it, so they did it. Um, but yeah, Kurt Vonnegut has a character that re- recurs in lots of books called Kilgore Trout, who is basically himself. Um, he's a pulp fiction writer who um, writes just absolute trash, but which is also absolute genius um, and is underappreciated by everybody. <laughs> Asshole. He's a total Kilgore Trout is a real jerk. That's such I'm an my own time. It's a great idea. Have you ever been tempted to do that in your books? Uh put myself in as an author. Well yeah, yeah I, I do write about authors an awful lot, which they tell you never to do, but I do. Because I think that's really interesting in Louis and Louise. As a man, Louis is a successful author mm-hmm. as 
as a woman, Louise is a sort of desperate, aspiring writer mm-hmm. who's, you know, struggling to find the time and the confidence to, to make it happen. And I would love, because they eventually, it's not a spoiler, but in the book, they have, they have Louis and Louise being the same person. Um, they both eventually write the same book. Mm. And it will turn out to be exactly, I think, pr- pretty much the same book. Um, but how both of them were published um, was something I really wanted to get into in the book, how Louise's book would look very different from Louis's book, even with the same words in it. But I, I didn't go there because I thought I might become a little bit bitter. Oh, but I would really love that, wouldn't you? That there'd be a sort of, um, Louis would be like sort of very serious, critical choice and yeah. the way it'd be sort of presented and it'd yeah. be like, oh, we're going to get this New York Times. Whereas, you know, Louis, someone would say, um, can, I think you, if we really want to publish you, but you need another 10,000 Instagram followers. We need to really think about the social strategy. And we're going to do a giveaway where you get to go for afternoon tea with oh, the, yeah, um, in someone that looks like a log cabin. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because Louis's book is called Light and Winter and it has a black and white cover. Um, I think Louise's book would be called, what, Love in the Forest. <laughs> maybe have a high heel on it somewhere <laughs> a high heel and a sort of like a an axe leaning across it you and me in the woods <laughs> yeah um, i'm curious about because this book has your name on it but i don't oh, yeah. know about this book um can i ask you yeah sure that was my first ever hardcover so that's why i've got a copy of it one on there stand. it's got a lot of it's... dust on it you can tell how old that one is um one night stand um was what my right about called being a bad girl yes so I started out my career writing um for Mills and Boone and then I wrote a bunch of romantic comedies and this is one of my romantic comedies um called One Night Stand and it's about a woman who um I think it was published in 2007 2006 um I was pregnant when I wrote it um it's about a woman who works in a bar and who writes erotic novels in her spare time so I got to write a lot of erotic novels to go into this book Um, and one night she gets drunk and she has a one night stand with this guy who uh, looks like George Michael but she doesn't know his name and when she wakes up in the morning she realizes the condom is broke um, and she's pregnant but she doesn't know who this dude is all she knows about him is that well she thinks he's called George and he looks like George Michael so then she starts it's set here in Reading um, and she, so she starts looking around Reading to try to find George. So I'm really, really interested in your career and the books you write and your trajectory, because I think I, mean, I absolutely love a, a romantic comedy. Um, what was the, the first book you wrote for Mills and Boone and what was that experience like? Ah, well, I can show you. Shall I show <gasps> Please you? Please do. Okay, but it's, they're all up in my attic. So why don't I, can I, shall I bring them down? Uh, oh, we've not. Come up sure. to my is attic. It, is that... all, we might not all fit. Come on, come on I'll show you. <laughs> see, see what you want to do. Because it's not a real attic. Um, it's not a real room. This is really good. I don't think we've ever been in an attic before. I mean, in a, on a show. Do you work up here? Oh, it's your yeah, office. It's my office. Oh, fantastic. So... It's an unusual uh, way to get up to an attic. So we, had, we had them. We had a carpenter build a staircase like a ship's staircase. So it is quite narrow and difficult to get up, but on purpose. You know, I don't like people mm. up here. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's good. I'm not working. Um, so if I can just describe it a little bit, this is really, really, really lovely. It's quite a big um, space. I can see. Massive books, and yeah, this is where the magic happens, I guess. <laughs> That's where the mess happens. I have a view of a gargoyle. Can you see the gargoyle's oh. butt on my skylight? Yes. 
<laughs> or in a Victorian nice. terraced house with a little gargoyle on the top. Is that what, when you came to look around, were you like, yes, the gargoyle, I will take this will house, own, please? Yes, I will own this house, please. Please, can I ask you about your signed picture of Owen Wilson? That was a gift. Um, I, I had a real big crush on him um, about 10 years ago when he was in um, Shanghai Noon oh. with Jackie Chan. I love that film. It's Hansel, I love. Oh, I love him as Hansel. That's great. I, I just saw that my, the other day. That is my <laughs> ultimate crush. That's all of the Princess Bride. Oh, wow. Poster. Yeah, that, I love that book so much. So much. And I love the, the movie as well. When did you read the book? Were you a I saw the movie first, I think. The the thing is about the book, have you read the book? Because it's quite, it's it's exactly the same story Mm. as the movie, but the movie is about The Princess Bride and the book is about William Goldman. Um, And so there's a lot in there about his relation, well, it's fictionalized, obviously, but there's a lot in there about his relationship with his son and his wife and there's a lot in there about being a screenwriter. Um, And so the book is not as child-friendly as the movie is, So, but it has extra added depths to it. With having all the same things that are in the movie, just extra stuff about William Goldman. Which movie were you most disappointed by having loved the book? Oh, God, so many. <laughs> <laughs> so many. That's, see, now you got me on the spot. So, yeah, so these are, so these are all my books, um, except for Together and Louis and Louise is down there. So I wrote six um, Mills and Boons which are here. The first one was called Featured Attraction. Oh my God, they're just, these covers are amazing. I agree. They're just so classic. Did you have any kind of input at all? Did they no. say like, here's your cover? Or no. did you even see them before they came out? No. Oh, well, yeah, like a week before they come out. So, and most of the time, not the titles either. So what you do when you write a Mills and Boone is you write a story and then they have you fill out this long thing about the cover mm-hmm. sheet, um, who should be on there and what the what the protagonist look like and all of that and then they ignore that and just find you a stock photo of of two two people kissing so if, if i may i'm going to describe these so this is the first one yeah that this i wrote that attraction i do okay longer story for only 319 and this is it's very attractive beautiful sort of chiseled brunette couple he's a got a touch of the the ben stillers she, I was gonna say, she looks not unlike Kate Middleton, but a sort of Hallmark movie version of Kate Middleton, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Um, he's bare-chested. Mm. She's got um, a sort of satiny white camisole on, but it almost looks like a sort of a bit of surgical gowning or something, that angle. You can just sort of see a cup and a strap. Mm. Oh, we've got being a bad girl. Oh, my God. Isn't that great? This is my favourite, favourite one. She's You've totally got... from the 80s. Look yeah, at her. Yeah, she is, she is um, Kylie. Is she Charlene in Neighbours? Is that Kylie? <laughs> Biker jacket, ripped jeans. That guy. Oh, my. And his, I love the way. So you've got this guy with massive, massive arms. They're both on a motorbike. His kind of not quite. It's like a cap sleeve sort of like man shirt, but it's billowing. So I don't think he's got. It looks like he's got a proper sort of matronly. Boob. <laughs> He's wearing a leather vest. Look, I think that's. I oh, so that's the lining of the vest. The lining of his leather. Um, it's delicious. Next. Ooh, yeah. black and white. Very yeah. noir. I think she's wearing the same slip as the first person, and I'm. I'm pretty sure these are all the same dude. Yes. <laughs> Maybe not, but they're very similar looking. They could be brothers. <laughs> I would love that so much. <laughs> Can that please be your next book about a family of brothers who will end up as sort of sexy 80s catalogue models? (laughs) And their dad invented the genre or something. So they're snogging in a sink. Now we've got um, Driving Him Wild. 
and I think is that supposed to be a cut or is that just a no that's just a sort of a, a swishy bit um they're both in t-shirts that could be a um Jackie photo story or it something could be, it looks yeah a bit more chest. yeah he's he's quite he's quite mature he's got very hairy yeah. arms um I like her <laughs> Oh, that's um, that's his hands and her hair. I thought she had a really elaborate barrette system going on. All work and no play. Again, a bit like this is a lot steamier looking. It's because it's a bit blurred. It looks yeah. a little bit um, like a still from an, an excess video or something. That, that was was a sex comedy, essentially a sex comedy. That book. It was it was a mistaken identity, friends to lovers. You you use a lot of tropes in Mills and Boone, um, and you try to have a lot of fun with them. Um, can I can I read out a little bit? Sure. Yeah, that book was published in two thousand and seven. So just so listeners know that my uh, my pro style is slightly different these days, um, but I loved writing these books hugely. They were so much fun. Tell me one more thing, Johnny. Just for the information, and then I'll leave you in peace for now. What's your wildest fantasy? He was being driven insane by desire, and he typed furiously, without slowing down to let his brain think about what he was communicating. He can't wait for dinner to be over. We get up and leave together. And when we're outside in the cool spring air, we immediately touch each other. We slide our hands inside each other's clothing and we touch whatever skin we can, kissing and exploring, not caring about the other people walking past us in the evening. Our clothes are in the way, but that's exciting too because every touch promises even more. Ooh! Uh, can, I, can I borrow this? Yeah. <laughs> That one's really steamy, so they're best friends, but they haven't seen each other in 15 years, and so they don't know what each other looks like, and, and they email every day. And so she, um, but he is, of course, he's a computer geek, but he, of course, moonlights as a male model, because you course. do. So, um, and she is an ad- advertising executive who's just, uh, who's having trouble with her job. So she hires this male model just from his headshots and doesn't recognize that it's really her friend. And she ends up having a date with this guy, and and Johnny thinks that she knows who he is, but she doesn't. So when she's asking about like his sexual fantasies, he's typing out and she doesn't know that it's with the guy she's going to have a date. So then they go and do everything and then oh she finds God. out and there's trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that, it was hugely fun to write that book. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We'll be back to Julie soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so good that the hamburger would eat it with chips. This week, it's a children's classic, Carbonell by Barbara Slay, first published in 1955 and recommended to me by a fabulous friend of your book to the writer Anne Booth. Carbonell is the king of the cats, but he has been cursed into servitude until Rosemary acquires him by accident during her school summer holiday and attempts to set him free. This is utterly charming and uplifting. Gentle, gorgeous and genuinely funny. It's the perfect book for anyone who could do with a little bit more love and levity in their lives. Carbonell is published by Puffin and out now. Now back to Julie. So how did you start? Did you know anyone who did or did you just think, oh, I'd love to do that? I just thought I would love to do it. So when I when I first decided I wanted to be a writer, I knew I wanted to write something, but I didn't know what. So I have quite eclectic reading tastes. I like, you know, literary fiction, science fiction, and I like very commercial fiction as well. And I thought um, very naively that um, I would, since I didn't know what kind of book I wanted to write, but I knew I wanted to write a book, I thought, well, I'll try to write a Mills and Boone because I know that they're short and I know what kind of stories they are and how hard can it be. And it turns hard, out, in, right? yeah, in actual fact, it's very, very difficult to write a Mills and Boone um, and get it published. It's it's very hard to do because you have to, you have all of these marketing constraints and yet you have to write a very convincing story. It can't be by the numbers at all. And you have to train yourself how to write that. So I took a few years and trained myself how to write in that way, um, which also taught me a lot about things about conflict and characterization and pacing, um, so which what, then I could carry through How did you train yourself? Too. Did you read masses of Mills and I read huge amounts of them and I don't have them around anymore. I have some down there, um, but I don't have them around anymore because I I would read lots and lots and lots and then I've got rid of them since. Um, So I read tons of them. Um, I wrote a bunch of them that got rejected and, and just enjoyed it a lot. Got to know a lot of stuff about story structure and conflict because if you've got a, if, if your book is about two people who basically love each other but can't be together until the final you know you have to spend 50,000 words keeping these people apart Mm. and there's only so much you know ex-girlfriends and big misunderstandings you can use you need to have a lot of deep conflict in there so when they sort of came back and said no did they have lots of constructive criticism about what the story needed to make it work was it useful yeah yeah they did yeah they were they were great and I had um, a mentor um, who was who's Kate Walker who had written I think she's written 50 Mills and Boons um, and really successful and so she helped me a lot um, with writing those two but I was when I was writing those I I was quite lucky because I got rejected so many times um, that I started writing a standalone novel too and a romantic comedy and I got an agent for that at the same time that I got my Mills and Boone publishing deal so I had two strands going oh. at the same time so there are six books here but five of them were published in 2006 and that one was published in 2007 did and you also, write them all this in book year? was published in 2006 um so that's Spirit Willing um, Flesh Week that's got a fabulous cover yeah. um I love you've got a um a very sexy fortune teller yeah. I guess another little black dress book um I love her um her starry dress and her flicky hair and a very handsome hunky um Batman yeah that was um, Owen Wilson that was cartoon- nice ah Owen Wilson. that was at the height he of my looks Owen bit- Wilson crush. do you remember that Aquafresh advert with the cartoon family brushing their teeth <laughs> yeah. he's got such a big chin and such fabulous teeth 
but yeah, I was, I thought, I, I think I wrote three of these in a year. Um, I got my first deal in 2004 and then I had six of them published by 2006. So that's, yeah, that's three a year. How did you keep going? Because it sounds as though you were very enjoying of the process. But I think I would have been really demoralised if, you know, my second or third one was like, you know, they said no. I think, oh, well, balls to this, I'm going to be a welder. But you obviously looking at the, you know, the shelf of prolificness, you just kept going. I really got my teeth in and I was like, I'm not going to fail on this. I'm going to do it. But then I really loved it. As I said, these Mills and Boons are so much fun to write. I mean, I, I would swear and whatever, but it, it, they are pure pleasure because they're they're happy books and they're really fast paced and, and mine were funny. Um, tons of sex in them. I love writing sex. Um, and it, I just enjoyed it. And I was teaching full time at the time. And actually, a lot of that time um, when I wrote, I wrote three in a year. I wrote these three in a year when I was having miscarriages um, every few months. So we're trying for a baby and I lost three pregnancies within a year. Um, and I also wrote three books in a year, two of them about pregnancies. Isn't that awful? Wow. Um, but it, it helped me get through that as well Gosh, to write these happy stories. Strange sort of symmetry. It was really intense, yeah. And I was, yeah, I was teaching full time. Were you teaching English? Um, teaching English. That's um, a very, that's a hell of a thing to assume. But just, <laughs> yeah. I was, if teaching, you were like, I was <laughs> teaching computer science. Like, Damn you, <laughs> the many strands of brilliance. No, I'm really only good at one thing. Um, I was teaching at a, at a girls' Catholic boarding school um, in Ascot, uh, very posh, and the girls were very, very nice, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, but I was writing these incredibly sexy books in my spare time. Thinking, screw you, Nance. What was your favourite book to teach? I loved teaching um, Pride and Prejudice, and I loved teaching Far From the Madding Crowd. Oh, that's quite a disparate selection. Yeah, those were those were for the older kids, and with the younger kids, I used to love teaching Holes by Louis Satchar. Ooh, love that book. That was great. I've not read it for so long, but I remember reading it. I think one of my little sisters had it and I just sort of picked it up in that, you know, you pick everything up, you know, knowing it's not sort of especially for me, but really idly, you know, starting it and then just being gripped. Yeah, it's a really clever book about storytelling as well, as well as just being a good book for kids. Did any of your students come up with any ideas or theories or observations that blew your mind a bit and things that hadn't occurred to you? Yeah, all the time, all the time, especially in A-level. I used to love teaching A-level and they would come up with things quite often yeah although I was I used to I had a with the A-level group I would just go through like Wuthering Heights and point out all the sex references like, <laughs> oh it's going <laughs> that sounds really really fun is there anything that you any books if you were to go back that you would love to teach so many, so many. I, I mean, I really, I, I think you get to know a book really well by teaching it. Mm. I know Pride and Prejudice so well because I have taught that book. And, and Wuthering Heights, mm. I have taught those books each, you know, half a dozen times or more. And, and Ro- Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth. I know those so well. And because you have to break them down for younger readers, mm. you get to know them structurally. And I'm a real structure person. You can see that's my that's my latest novel on the wall uh. with the post-its. I'm really into structure and I'm really into how you break it down. And um, breaking down Jane Austen taught me a huge amount. 
she her, Pride and Prejudice is such a well structured book. You know, it, mm. it has all the turning points in the right places, and everybody has a you know it's it's everybody is pride or prejudice or both, and in every single thing that happens, there's that interplay of that theme. It's it's an extraordinarily well constructed book. Because I think that Austen writes these very very vivid characters and these real human archetypes, and we sort of continue to to think of them in that way and use them in that way. And I think perhaps it is the mark of a really great writer when the structure is so good that we almost don't notice it and it requires that close reading yeah so good if you have you ever broken broken down pride and prejudice no but that i'm going to go straight home and do that now and just see how the arc works and and where the midpoint reversal is and you know where where she realizes that she loves him after all no it's not that the midpoint reversal is his is his um proposal Mm. and i suppose perhaps you know, with a romantic comedy, because you know where you're driving people at and you've somehow got to keep that element of surprise. Mm. And so the what isn't surprising, but the how is so surprising. And perhaps yeah. that's what Austin does and what you do. Yeah, that's what... No one else, doing. just you guys. <laughs> just us, just us, yeah. Um, can I... I'm going to have a nosy look at your post-its yeah. and I'm not going to read any out because I don't want to do any spoilers. Um, <laughs> um, I think I didn't bother to chart the last few scenes um i think there's more down here because i just finished it so is it sort of do you think in scenes rather than in chapters yes story events rather than scenes sometimes a story event takes several scenes um and sometimes there are several story events per scene and do you start with i don't know five or ten key scenes and then add and move or do you know exactly what all the scenes are no uh, it depends on the book. So this this book is I it has taken me a long time to write, and I wrote a really really messy draft which sucked a lot. So then I had to go back and rewrite it so it made sense. And this is the map that I made as I was doing my sort of final revision. So I was charting where I had been because uh, I had so many versions of the book, I couldn't remember where I was and what was happening. Did so, you do that with your editor, or did you go on your own in, on with own. the first draft? And- yeah. Oh, yeah, because the first draft is awful. I wouldn't, I never let anybody see my drafts. Oh, really? Um, no, because they're terrible. Not um, even I'm your such a publisher? No, no, nobody sees my draft. I it, I need to have it as perfect as I can make it before anybody sees it. I'm a little bit um, anally retentive. <laughs> Do you go to writer friends when you're stuck, when something's a bit naughty, and yeah. without actually showing them the draft? Do you yeah. ever get them to talk you through a... Yeah, not. yeah, really often. Um, and in fact, I think that time before we were in France together, um, I had a couple of days with Kate Harrison and um, I didn't know what was what was going to happen in Louis and Louise to Benny. Mm. Um, and I spent some time with her just talking that through. She was the one who actually came up with the baseball accident. Um, that doesn't give anything away, but there's, no. there's something that happens in the book to one of the characters. And she was the one who came mm. up with it when we were ha- sharing a bunch of rosé. But I don't show drafts. We just talk through what's going on and in fact that makes it maybe even that's a little bit more scary now so my draft for this novel that's on the wall is currently with my editor and the Ah. only person who's read it in the world besides me is my agent who I trust but you know she's on my side right so um so it's with my editor now so I am currently essentially shitting bricks are these mainly research books yes oh yes let's talk about yeah um, mostly research but research for books that have happened a long time ago and I have a lot of books there as well um that are books that are have been published by my clients so um I run a literary consultancy and um, some of those are published books from my clients so how did you get into that were you doing that once you'd started 
you know, writing and publishing books? Or was that happening when you were teaching? Um, it was when I was already writing and publishing. And I'm trying to think. I, I was teaching. I, I was doing a lot of teaching um, and workshops and things. Um, and I think it was actually Claire McIntosh who got me started in it. Because her first book, I Let You Go, um, she had an agent interested in it. But there were some structural problems with it that she didn't know how to solve. So she got in touch with me out of the blue. I think she, oh, I'd done a workshop at the Chipping Norton Literary Festival. And she got in touch with me out of the blue and said, can you read this book um, and tell me what you think? And it it has the most amazing twist. This is the book that sort of started off all the shocking twist. It has the most amazing twist. And it's massive, isn't it? Absolutely huge. And so I read that at manuscript and I was like, oh my God, this twist. And then um, helped her with some of the structural aspects around there and characterization. Um, So, and then after that, I was like, oh, I quite like this working on people's books for money. So I, I've started, started doing that more. Yeah. But it's great to have the book. Then the book comes to you afterwards. And it's so Mm. exciting to know that you helped with that. It's, it's, uh, more satisfying than your own. And I bet own. you show up in people's like dedications and thanks and things. Yes, it's so cool. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. So, how did you tend to get a mix, or do, does it tend to be kind of before the books have an agent or a publisher, or does it sometimes happen at different stages of the journey? It's before they're agented. I think um, agents and editors want to have their own stamp on mm-hmm. a book, so I, I wouldn't do that. But it's usually unpublished or people who are moving to a new genre. So, so I'm working with somebody right now who has written a bunch of children's books, but this is her first novel oh. so I work with her on that oh should you go back down so there's another hand grip down you're almost at the railing there and there's another hand grip on your right I don't know why I'm such a wuss about this it's entirely sort of psychological it shouldn't make any difference how I go down these stairs yeah I did once fall off Nelson's column oh God. Worth going trying to get down <laughs> a little bit down no we're talking about the books on this shelf ah <laughs> Stranger Beside Me, um, about Ted Bundy by um, Anne Rule. Um, And this is her first true crime. Um, And she actually knew him. She she, um, volunteered on a suicide helpline with him um, in Seattle. Uh, or Portland, oh and so my she god! Knew that, so, he, she, so she he was a volunteer. Him. So Ted he was Bundy a volunteer. So she knew him. Oh, that's so um, fucking and weird. And used to talk to him when he was in prison. Um, and then she went on to have a real career in true crime. And this is a really, really good true crime. It's absolutely fascinating. But actually, reading this, and I probably read this book ten times. Um, reading this and then watching the Netflix documentary, he comes across much better in this because actually in person he was a real dick. I mean, <laughs> unsurprisingly, because he murdered, raped, and murdered thirty women. But people keep on saying about how he was really charming and he was really smart. And if you watch the Netflix documentary, he really comes across as an asshole. And I, I'm, you're just like, why were people charmed by this dickhead? He wasn't just a serial killer. He was a dick. <laughs> but the whole narrative about Ted Bundy is that he was so charming and smart and he was such a... The judge at his trial said, You've, you're such a, it's such a waste. I mean, he was telling Ted Bundy, that it was, who killed 30 women, that his life was a waste. I mean, but how awful is that? I suppose we have that so much now. Do you know, had the member of, like, you know, family man, beloved by everybody, his neighbours say he was great. He killed his wife and kids and himself. Yeah, exactly. Why are you interested in murderers? I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, real murderers are obviously terrible. 
but I have a real thing about fictional ones. And I, I also do really like true crime, well-written true crime. Is it because um, the how is so interesting? You know, the, the, why, the doing it in a... Or the, the why, the psychology, I think. That it's so... Because it's so alien. And I suppose, as a writer, your job is to kind of understand all kinds of desire. And I think any novel is really about the desires people have. And a lot of the, I mean, a lot of it is just misogyny. So it's, it's interesting from a feminist perspective as well, just to see how, I mean, that Ted Bundy narrative is so misogynistic, um, just centering him instead of the 30 women he killed. Mm. Um, and so I, it's like a Jack grotesque Hooper. horror. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, with um, Holly Rubenhold's books coming out this week, wasn't it? The Five, about the victims oh, yes. instead of about... Jack the Ripper. I loved her book about um, the Covent Garden um, sex workers. That's really good. That's about Harris's list of um, of prostitutes working in Covent's Garden, um, and so talking about all the different women who work there and and what their careers were like. That's very good. I don't think I know about Harris's list. Was this in Victorian times? Yeah, or? it was like a directory of of for guys who wanted to have sex with women for money. Because didn't. No, not Victorian. No, it's, I think it was 18th century. Is this Dave's as well as 33 and the 3rd? Yeah, uh, about the birds. Yeah. If you were going to write one about a band or a particular... Because they're all about particular records, aren't they? Or are they about particular records? What record would you write a book about? Oh, well, um, Carrie and Lowell by Subjohn Stevens. Ah. I love that album so much. Would you want to write about how it was made and about Subjohn Stevens? Or would you want to write a story kind of based on your interpretation of it. I would like to write a story. It's so narrative. That album is so narrative. And um, actually, I listened to it constantly while I was writing together. And then I sent a copy of my book to Safjan, and um, who I don't know personally, but I feel like I do. And I got a message back from Lowell, who is his manager, his his stepfather, oh, who wow. is the Lowell and Carrie and Lowell. He wrote back to me and said, oh, I'm so pleased that you listened to this album while you're writing the book. I'm going to buy it for myself. Like, oh, my God. It was like touching a celebrity. That's really, really cool. That's so cool. What did you listen to when you were writing Louis and Louise? I think I mostly listened to Chopin's Nocturnes when I was was doing that. But also a variety of 80s hits, um, too. (laughs) Um, Do you read any novels when you're writing? Yes, but I try to read something that's very different from what I'm writing. Yeah. So, and do you have a kind of, that you know, what you're reading is too much and too distracting from you, or do you tend that's to have quite I good instincts? That's why I try not to read um, anything that's anything like what I'm writing when I'm, when I'm reading it. Yeah. Uh, should we put that down? Um, I should mention that we're walking down the stairs and there are many, many, many Percy Jacksons. <laughs> See? <laughs> there must be about 20. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's so my son, he's 12. And he reads them all repeatedly. Um, so they're, they're all quite well thumbed as well, because he doesn't just, he likes to read books over and over again. I think that's a comfort thing when mm. you're at that age. Um, and so he's read all of them a lot. Do you reread very often? Yes, I do. Yeah, there are certain books that I reread over and over again. Um, and sometimes when you need comfort as well, mm. they're, they're real things. So, what do you think you've read the most? Aside from that Ted Bundy one. <laughs> literary what? author my favorite book is Ted Bundy um and also for your comfort read <laughs> yeah, that's not my comfort read no I love the grand Sophie by Georgia uh, Hare 
that's one of my comfort reads, although it's a, it's a recent comfort read. Watership Down um, is a real comfort read. I, when, I'm, when I'm sick, I like things where I know it's going to happen. Mm. Um, Sherlock Holmes, I reread that as a comfort read. The real comfort reads are the things that you read when you were a kid, aren't they? And then you come back yeah. and you, you know that they're... And that there's no peril. And when the peril happens, you do know it's temporary, that yeah. it's all you're leading to yeah. a good place. So I really wanted to ask you about your experience of publishing um, together mm-hmm. um, the book before Louis and Louise. I know we've talked about it a bit, but the difficulty in terms of the way you're, you were treated by your publishers and that you wrote a book that I don't think they were expecting and what happened next, because I think it's really interesting as... You know, because that book has been so, so, so successful and Mm. so beloved. And, um, you know, even Richard and Judy were fans, I believe. (laughs) Um, So can you tell me a bit about what happened? Um, I wrote that book. It was my fourth novel for that publisher. Um, I'd had two two book contracts, so it was the last book in the two book con- in the second two book contract. Um, and I had written a synopsis and discussed the book a lot with my editor, um, and then I delivered it. But soon after I delivered it, she left the company um, and went to another publisher, and so I was I had a different editor, and the new editor didn't like the ending. It's got a twist ending. So Together is about a, um, a couple who have been together for 50 years and it starts at the end of their life um, when they're in their 80s and then it goes backwards through time to 1962 when they first met and the big secret that they've been keeping their entire lives. Um, and the big secret was always the same thing. Mm. I had never changed it. It was always a thing. But my new editor and the team decided that um, the ending was way too controversial and that they did not want to publish the novel with that ending. Um, And so they told me that and they they suggested some other things that they thought would be more suitable. Um, And I was actually really shocked by this um, because the whole novel, you know, if you write an ending and especially if the whole novel is about that ending, Mm. every single line in that novel is about what happens and about that secret. And if you change the secret, it it would change the entire book and the point of the book. I wanted readers to finish the book and go, whoa, I need to talk about this with somebody. I I was not looking to write an uncontroversial book. Mm. I wanted it. And that was always the selling point was that it was something to talk about. But um, my publishers really felt that they wanted a much more straightforward commercial book Mm. um, and therefore that I should change the ending. And so I, I... thought about it for a really long time. Um, well, for four or five, four months, probably. I, I went through and I, I constructed alternate endings. Um, I tried to figure out what was going on. I made huge lists of pros and cons or whatever. But in the end, I figured that there was no change I could make for that book that wouldn't make it worse. If I could find a change that would make it the same, it would be okay. But mm. I, I couldn't find a way that wouldn't make it worse. And so I left the publisher and I paid back all the money that they had paid me for that book. Um, and then fortunately was taken on by Orion, um, who really saw the ending as a strength and made their whole marketing co- campaign pretty much about that ending. You know, what I know about you is that you're, you know, someone who's got a lot of kind of strength and fortitude and that you write and write and write and you're not a quitter, but just, that must have just been debilitating. It was terrible. I mean, because it was my 23rd novel. So it wasn't a new thing for me. Mm. You know, I'd been doing this for a long time. uh, 23rd published novel. It it, it wasn't new. And so I and and I had always 
felt my editors had always really given me very good advice. So it was quite difficult. And I always say to other authors or new authors, you know, your editor is almost always going to say exactly the thing to make it better. Yeah. You know, you really should think about it. So I did think about it, but it, it was it was difficult for me. And we just had a fundamental misunderstanding of what that book should be about. But it made me question my abilities as a writer and it made me question my own vision um, and the worth of what I was doing a lot. Um, I had writer's block for 18 months afterwards. Not that I couldn't write anything but I was writing lots of things but I couldn't finish anything which I think is pretty telling because yeah. I was quite afraid of that. Um, even though I had a really fantastically supportive agent, new publisher who were 100% behind me, the book was doing really well, I really didn't get rid of that writer's block. I had to have counseling to get rid of that writer's block um, to really understand why I wasn't trusting myself and get over that. Was there anything that was revealed to you that surprised you in that process? There was a lot that surprised me. Um, I, I think it went back to my 20s and when I had a lot of self-doubt and and a lot of those feelings sort of came back to the surface. Uh, can we look at your books? That I know this is your um, to-read to pile. Read. Although some of them I have read. I've read some of and them already. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I like that your own book is in your to-read <laughs> pile. Um, so of these, uh, what are you the most excited about reading next? I, I, everybody tells me I need to read Sally Rooney's Normal People, So, and that just got long-listed for the Women's Prize last night, yeah. so I need to read that. Um, that's good. I've actually already read some of these, so... Um, um, I've not read Normal People yet. I bought it, and I don't know why, because I'm sort of really... I think there's so much I have to read for work. I know I'm going yeah. to enjoy this. I want to save it. Yeah, I'm really looking it's forward to It's very shiny that. edition. It's very well. shiny. It looks... It's very beautiful. Um, I think it's the Waterstone Special Hardback. Ooh, what's that Jackie Collins? Oh, the Jackie Collins um, is there... Is there re-releasing her books, all of her books, oh. um, with introductions by popular women's fiction authors so I've got the world is full of divorced women there which is introduced by Veronica Henry um, but they also have thrill introduced by Barbara Taylor Bradford and so it's it's exciting that looks really really fun doesn't These it look are, good don't it's they look cover. the great really 70s covers yeah I love it oh fantastic yeah um, that's, that's for a train where I can really enjoy mm. myself can really immerse yourself in that world. Yeah. Have you read Educated by Tara Westover? I loved it a... so much. So good and, and really quite shocking. Um, I enjoyed that book a lot. That's the book that I bought for everybody for Christmas. Ah, that's a good book to give the gift. What's the last book that you were given that you loved? People don't give me books as presents, do you oh. know? Um, which is which is weird. My brother gave me a book called The Spirit Hits You When You Fall Down. Um, which is a medical book, nonfiction, and it's about the um, an epileptic girl in the I think it's pronounced Hmong community in California, um, and about what happened to her because of culture clashes between her community and the medical community. It's an extraordinary nonfiction book. That's the last book that somebody gave me that I That's loved. That's a really good, specific, thoughtful gift book. Yeah, I think. he's it's a not... doctor, so we both love medical memoirs. So I gave him Adam Kay ah. um, for fun, and he gave me that. 
huge thanks to Julie. Show her your love at Julie underscore Cohen on Twitter and Julie X Cohen on Instagram and rush out and read Louis and Louise. It's one of my very favourite books of 2019. Julie is such an emotionally smart and empathetic writer and she makes us all think and feel better. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, Bibliognostic Babes. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guest and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time. For now, I leave you with the words of Agatha Christie via Danielle Steele. I want to die face first in my typewriter. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.